millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Jean Hans Korolitz on her new novel, The Plot. Jean Hanf Korolitz was born and raised in New York City and educated at Dartmouth College and Clare College, Cambridge. She is the author of seven novels, including The Devil and Webster, which we spoke about on Little Atoms a couple of years ago. You Should Have Known was adapted as the 2020 HBO series The Undoing, starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. And Admission was adapted as the 2013 film with the same name, starring Tina Fey, Lily Tomlin and Paul Rudd. And her other novels include The White Rose, The Sabbath Day River, and a jury of her peers. And today we're going to talk about Jean's new book, The Plot. Jean, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me back. I, I guess I didn't disgrace myself too badly last time. <laughs> um, tell us, first of all, how you would describe The Plot. Oh, well, I would describe it as a literary novel about suspense. Um, in a way, you know, this whole idea of genre and what category a book fits into has been... Uh, has sort of bedeviled me through my writing career. I've never entirely understood it. I, I've never been one of those writers who has, you know, uh, an array of projects to pick from. I always have one story at a time, and it has to be uh, suspenseful to me, or I, I wouldn't write it to begin with. So the fact that some of my books have ended up in quote-unquote literary fiction and others in quote-unquote thriller or mystery or suspense has really (laughs) always been very confusing to me. But this book is, I would say, rather definitively on the suspense end of things. It's certainly being talked about uh, in terms of its suspense, but ironically, it's about a writer. It's about a literary writer and the um, somewhat morally suspect decision he makes regarding a story that he appropriates from one of his students. And Jake, our protagonist, I feel like I've met him so many times over the course <laughs> I bet of doing this. <laughs> yeah, he's he had a small success, a, a new and noteworthy New York Times, not by any means best selling book to begin with. The of course autobiographical novel that, that a lot of uh first novelist start with He's... yeah with a truly pathetic title which I, <laughs> I my agent uh, with some glee I would say helped me to title his first novel is called The Invention of Wonder which is just a pathetically 
nondescript and, you know, one size fits all title you could attach to any literary novel. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that you point out that he has, uh, if any success at all with this book, it's a small success. Um, other critics and reviews have characterized him as a one hit wonder or somebody who's trying to recapture the success of his first novel. He really doesn't have any success to speak of. He just has this little blip of recognition in the New York Times, but he uh, he kind of starts going downhill from there. And by, you know, seven or eight years later, he has really failed to produce a follow-up book to his own satisfaction, let alone to anyone else's. He's really on the skids and he's teaching in a writing program, which is so far from first rate <laughs> that it's probably more akin to a sign up and give us your money and you can go kind of place. Yeah, so he's, as I said, he, he feels like many people I've interviewed. He's he's obviously convinced of his own genius. <laughs> yeah. um, he's vain, he's insecure, he's jealous of other writers, any successes they may have. And he himself started out at a, a better creative writing course, we can say. It's still probably not Iowa, but... A better well, actually, I, I did model it on Iowa, his creative writing course. But yeah, he finds himself teaching in um, in upstate Vermont on this course. And, and you have a lot of fun with the very concept of the creative writing course here. Tell us about that. It was so much fun to write those chapters set in a uh, fictional uh, MFA program, a low residency MFA program at a place called Ripley, which... Uh, on one hand is, of course, a college that doesn't exist. And on the other hand is, for those who care about these things, very much a nod to Patricia Highsmith. So if you're, if you're paying attention, you know right away that, that untoward things are coming. And Jake, uh, the novel begins with Jake arriving at his MFA uh, program, uh, about to greet his students and basically full of woe at where he is in his own life, but also at the students he's about to meet because he he's not going to be surprised by anything they do. He knows that they're not going to be gifted. He knows they're going to be arrogant and, and have all kinds of inflated ideas of what they deserve as writers and what they're going to accomplish. And he also understands that he is part of this machine that is taking the money of these people and sort of promising them that they can be writers. Um, so he, you know, to earn his crust of bread, he has to participate in this fiction that A, anybody can be a writer and B, that everybody has their own unique story that only they can tell, um, which is bullshit and bullshit. <laughs> um, so into his class walk all of these predictable people, including one who was certainly there in the only creative writing class I ever attempted to teach many years ago in Massachusetts, but I have since confirmed is present in every single creative writing class. This guy, this incredibly arrogant guy, who in this case is named Evan Parker. And it's with Evan Parker that the plot of the plot really begins. Well, indeed. I wonder if this actual guy is present in all of those classes, because Evan Parker does, it turn out, he's right about himself. He is. And when he announces to the class that he kind of doesn't need them, doesn't need his teacher, doesn't need to be there, doesn't need anything, uh, because he's writing, you know, the greatest plot never told before, 
and all of the wonderful things that we all dream of happening to our novels are going to happen to his novel. And uh, he, you know, he's protective of this story and will not share it in class. But later in a conference with Jake, his teacher, uh, he does let drop the story. And Jake hears it. Um, the reader doesn't hear it. We don't get to hear it till later. So we don't know what this miraculous plot is. But we know that Jake, to his own distress, absolutely agrees with his student. This book is going to be successful. It is going to make Evan extremely famous and wealthy and successful. And that is just so unfair. And yet there are rules about these things and there's nothing he can do about it. So, you know, he, he returns to his own downward slide as a writer. And a couple of years later, he makes the discovery that Evan has died and he's died without completing his book, certainly without publishing his book, perhaps even without writing his book at all. So suddenly Jake finds himself not just a kind of envious teacher of an undeserving student, but a writer confronting a story that has been left behind. And uh, and it's just sort of sitting there waiting for somebody to come along and pick it up and do it justice. And it doesn't take much self-persuasion for Jake to decide that that writer is himself. Before we carry on with where the book goes from there, as you just mentioned, when Jake finds out that Evan has died. His own career has sunk, if possible, even lower. And there's a brilliant sequence, a wonderful sequence, where he's basically left the create the creative writing course that he was doing has gone completely online. And he's he's still getting a bit of money from that. But he ends up working at basically what looks like a writer's <laughs> retreat. Yeah. But he just ends up being the manager of a hotel. Fundamentally. Basically. I mean, somebody is, uh, <laughs> I, I set that sequence in the town where I am right now. Uh, it's a town in upstate New York, which was once a sort of vacation town where a lot of people came to take the waters, a bit like Bath. But it has the town has atrophied and and it's full of these big empty hotels and somebody has come along and taken one of these hotels and sort of made a writer's colony out of it but it's really just a hotel so he can persuade himself that he's still in the world of writing but he's not you know he's really just clinging at this point so as you said, Jake writes the novel and it becomes yes. a massive success. Before we go on yes. to talk about the success, I just wanted to talk something about, obviously, we don't want to give too much away. This is definitely a, a book in which we do not want to give very much about what happens away. But throughout the book, there are sections of Jake's version, his novel, Crib, which is basically, he's taken over, stolen, hence the title, I guess, Evan's story. Tell us something about writing those excerpts of the novel. It is very much a novel that I want to read, and we get so little of it. <laughs> well, you almost got none of it at all because when I, I when I was writing the novel, which I did entirely during um, during the pandemic here in upstate New York, I was dreading writing those excerpts, and then in the middle of the period when I was writing, I happened to listen to a podcast featuring uh, the novelist Lily King. And Lily King was talking about her novel, Writers and Lovers. And the interviewer said to her, did you consider giving us some excerpts of this novel that your writer protagonist is writing during the course of your book? And she said, no, I decided not to because I felt no matter what I offered, what I, you know, what excerpts I offered the reader, 
I couldn't imagine that they, you know, that they wouldn't be disappointed because I've already presented her protagonist's book as, as very, very brilliant and successful. So when I heard that, I thought, hey, great. <laughs> I don't have to do it either. So I submitted my book to my editor without any of those excerpts of Crip. And she got on the phone to me and she said, where are the excerpts um, that you mentioned you might be writing? And I said, well, Lily King's not writing hers, so I don't have to write mine. And she said, no, you do. Um, and of course, she was absolutely right. But I, I've been dreading them because it's, as you said, it's like, you know, it's like writing a whole other novel, more characters, more names, more places, more storylines, more everything. I mean, even though you're just getting little tastes of it, you do have to do all of that figuring out. So I ended up writing all of those chapters after I had finished the main part of the book and then just kind of inserting them in the right places because as the plot reads, they are clues basically as to what this incredible, I shouldn't say incredible, but what this mystery is that Jake is confronting. Jake is not able to enjoy his massive success with his novel because he's too terrified that somebody's going to come out of the woodwork and accuse him of having done something very, very, very bad. And of course, that's exactly what happens. So he really is in a very tough spot. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Jean Hans Korolitz, and we're talking about her new novel, The Plot. And Jean, as we've already established, Jake becomes a massive success. Crib is a huge 
you know, Steven Spielberg options the film. It's a massive New York Times bestseller. You do mention at, at some point later on in the book, Gone Girl, and it does feel very much like uh, the sort of success that a book like Gone Girl had is what happened yeah. to, to Chris. Yeah, every time I, I ask myself, am I laying it on too thick? You know, am I, am I making it... Is it too unrealistic to portray this novel as as this successful? I would remind myself, Gone Girl, you know, at the height of Gone Girl, the author, Gillian Flynn, would absolutely have been traipsing around the country, filling massive theaters and being flown around and and feted and all that stuff. So, yes, she was very much in my mind. But for every Gillian Flynn or, you know, David Sedaris, who appears in theaters that are always full um, you know, there are many, many, many of us authors who will go across the country to appear in a bookstore in a strip mall, and there are two people there, and one of them is us. So, I mean, that that was really much more my style as a quote-unquote successful author until until perhaps possibly now. Well, let's hope this pandemic finishes off quick enough so you can... Uh... You can get out there to the theatres. <laughs> it would be fun. I, I've never actually been on a book tour. I've been on the sort of modified book tour where I'm sleeping on my friend's sofas and, and trying to pretend that it doesn't matter that nobody's turned up for the reading. <laughs> so it would be lovely to meet some actual readers in uh, in a bookstore somewhere one day. One of the things that, that happens to Jake um, while he's on his book tour is he meets the woman who will become his future wife and um, mm. in the book and that happens and I was horrified to read this bit that happens during a um she works for a a, a terrible misogynist talk radio host <laughs> over in Seattle yeah. and so you also get to have a bit of fun about the sort of part of the publicity round which is uh talking to radio hosts and podcasters which um yeah I was a uh, you know, reading through gritted teeth, I must admit. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I've never been interviewed on the radio by somebody like that, in a, you know, as part of a book tour. But I can only imagine the horror, the horror of uh, having to confront uh, an interviewer like Randy Johnson, who clearly had not read the book and didn't care to read the book and preferred to be talking about anything else. But it was so much fun to write. There's obviously fiction, as you said, we talk about Ripley College um, and actually like the Devil, in Web the Devil and Webster, which was set you know, entirely in a, in a fictional college. This book starts off in a fictional college. But what you also do, mentioned Gillian Flynn already, you use real life writers, real life publishers throughout the book as well. And obviously there are, you know, there are some elements that are fictionalised, but I just wanted to talk about that idea of using real life authors' names in the book, which obviously mm -hmm. gives a feeling of realism to the story as well. Yeah, you know, it, it's something I didn't really hesitate to do. I mean, uh, first of all, I love the, well, the fact that Stephen King even read this book, let alone gave it the incredible endorsement that he did was just beyond to me because, of course, I've been reading Stephen King since I was a teenager. I have immense respect for him. And I also knew that he shares some of my preoccupations with uh, where stories come from and what we're entitled to write about and uh, th this kind of paranoid anxiety that even as we're sitting down to write a completely original work, 
uh, at, alone in a room in our own homes that somehow we are appropriating as we do it. And, and this is an anxiety common to many, many authors, uh, myself included. So, you know, the, he has written about plagiarism many times, and he's written about that kind of very suspect space between the author and the reader. I mean, just think of misery. So it seemed crazy to not use his name. And of course, he's also um, well known among authors for having come up with the perfect answer to the ubiquitous question, where do you get your ideas? And his answer is Utica, New York, um, which is an upstate town, actually not too far from where I am right now. So every time I drive past Utica, I take a picture of the sign and I send it to all my friends and say, I'm, I'm up here getting some more ideas. Um, as far as, you know, Jake's novel Crib is published by Macmillan, which is the publisher of the plot in the U.S. I put that in thinking, well, if they don't like it, they'll let me know. But they loved it. So, <laughs> so it's good. Yeah, let's talk more about this sort of central moral dilemma in the book about who owns the story. Actually, as it happens, just last week, I interviewed Laura Lippman about her new novel, which has a, a idea of you know the ownership of, of story as its sort of central theme as well. And we talked about, coincidentally, but brilliantly for the publicity, what had just happened relatively recently was the whole cat person thing where... You yeah, know, fascinating. Somebody... Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, so th this idea about, because obviously, you know, plagiarism, stealing someone's literal words is obviously a bad thing. But the much more intangible idea of the ownership of a story is what this book hinges on. There are so many layers of what can be considered ownership of an idea. I mean, let's say you and I are having this conversation and we our conversation drifts into uh, a news item or an overheard conversation. And a week later, I'm still thinking about what you said, but now I've bombarded it with all of my, my proclivities and preoccupations and weirdnesses. And I've come up with a story that uh, may or may not even be recognizable as something that began in our conversation. But it did begin in our conversation. And in fact, you brought it to the conversation. So what do I owe you, if anything? Should I say, hey, are you ever going to do something with that thing you told me about? Do I owe you that? Is it a thing that existed in the world that you just told me about? You know, these are the kinds of things that we muck about in all the time. But I think for writers, there is no force as strong as the force of an idea that might turn into a work of art through us. You know, it's not a, a straightforward or a quick thing to write a novel. It usually takes years. It didn't this time, but we were in a pandemic this time and everything was different. If I'm going to spend three years writing a story, it's mine. You know, it's, I wrote every word. I wrote every sentence and it couldn't possibly be anyone else's. And yet there's this little voice in our head saying, gee, uh, should I go back to him? Should I, you know, maybe he spent all this time writing a, a novel of his own in, in response to this conversation we had. So these are the kinds of things that we obsess about. And then there are the existing stories that people pick up. And when I say existing, I mean things that people have already written about or composed about or made films about. I've written two novels that were based on other stories. And I say that without any hesitation at all. You know, one of my novels was based on the Strauss opera, Der Rosen Cavalier. Another was based on The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, mixed up with a true crime Irish case. So, you know, things come at us from all sorts of 
places. It's not about where it starts. It's where it finishes. It's what we do with that. So to me, these are all good things. These are not things that we should be uh, defensive about. And yet, <laughs> at the same time, we know that beyond our little enclave of writers, and I suppose other artists as well, there is a whole world of people who do not think the way we think about these things, and who are full of condemnation about the idea that I have, quote unquote, stolen my novel from a conversation that I had with you five years ago. So that's a sort of a long and meandering answer to your question. When people ask me, and they have, you know, how do I feel about the um, about what Jake does? My answer is, I feel fine about it. I have no problem with what he did. But like Jake, I have a big problem with how the rest of the world is going to see it. It's that condemnation that he fears so much. And if I had done what he does in this book, I would fear it too. I would fear the condemnation of readers of people who kind of chatter about books. I don't really want to be quote unquote canceled because I wrote a novel for five years based on a conversation that you and I had, you know, in a bar one day. To finish it off, can I get you to read this a bit? Of course, sure. I'm going to read an excerpt from the kind of moment when Jake decides to do what he does. He has just discovered that his former student is now his late former student and that there is no novel based on the incredible plot that he was told about some years earlier in their conference room in Vermont. So he is at the absolute nadir of his own literary career, and suddenly this information has come to him. So this is how he responds. Every now and then, some magical little spark flew up out of nowhere and landed in the consciousness of a person capable of bringing it to life. This was occasionally called inspiration, though inspiration was not a word writers themselves often used. Those magical little sparks tended not to waste time in declaring themselves. They woke you up in the mornings with an annoying tap-tap and a sense of unfolding urgency, and they hounded you through the days that followed. The idea, the characters, the problem, the setting, lines of dialogue, descriptive phrases, an opening sentence. To Jake, the word that comprised the relationship between a writer and their spark was responsibility. Once you were in possession of an actual idea, you owed it a debt for having chosen you and not some other writer. And you paid that debt by getting down to work, not just as a journeyman fabricator of sentences, but as an unshrinking artist ready to make painful, time-consuming, even self-flagellating mistakes. Rising to this possibility was a matter of facing your blank page or screen and muzzling the critics inside your head at least long enough for you to get some work done, all of which was profoundly difficult and none of which was optional. What's more, you stepped away from it at your peril, because if you failed in this grave responsibility, you might well find, after some period of distraction or even less than fully committed work, that your precious spark had left you, gone, in other words, as suddenly and unexpectedly as it had appeared, and your novel along with it, though you might spin your wheels for a few months or a few years or the rest of your life, hopelessly throwing words onto the page or screen in a stubborn refusal to face what had happened. And there was something else, an extra dark superstition for any writer hubristic enough to ignore the spark of a great idea. 
even if that writer was not of a religious bent, even if he did not believe that, quote, everything happens for a reason, even if indeed he resisted magical thinking of every other conceivable kind, the superstition held that if you did not do right by the magnificent idea that had chosen you among all possible writers to bring it to life, that great idea didn't just leave you to spin your stupid and ineffectual wheels, it actually went to somebody else. A great story, in other words, wanted to be told. And if you weren't going to tell it, it was out of here. It was going to find another writer who would, and you would be reduced to watching somebody else write and publish your book. Intolerable. Once long ago, Jake had done his best to honor what he'd been given. He had recognized his spark and done right by it, never shirking the hard thinking and the careful writing, pushing himself to do well and then to do better. He had pursued no shortcuts and evaded no effort. He had taken his chance against the world, submitted himself to the opinions of publishers, reviewers, and ordinary readers, but favor had passed over him and moved on to others. What was he to do? Who was he to be if no other spark ever came to him again? It was unbearable to contemplate. Good writers borrow, great writers steal, Jake was thinking. That ubiquitous phrase was attributed to T.S. Eliot, which didn't mean Eliot himself hadn't stolen it. But Eliot had been talking, perhaps less than seriously, about the theft of actual language, phrases and sentences and paragraphs, not of a story itself. Besides, Jake knew, as Eliot had known, and as all artists ought to know, that every story, like every single work of art, from the cave paintings to whatever was playing at the Park Theater in Cobleskill to his own puny books, was in conversation with every other work of art, bouncing against its predecessors, drawing from its contemporaries, harmonizing with the patterns. All of it, paintings and choreography and poetry and photography and performance art and the ever-fluctuating novel, was whirling away in an unstoppable spin-art machine of its own. And that was a beautiful, thrilling thing. He would hardly be the first to take some tale from a play or a book, in this case, a book that had never been written, and create something entirely new from it. Miss Saigon from Madame Butterfly, The Hours from Mrs. Dalloway, The Lion King from Hamlet, for goodness sake. It wasn't even taboo, and obviously it wasn't theft. Even if Parker's manuscript actually existed at the time of his death, Jake had never seen more than a couple of pages of the thing, and he remembered little of what he had seen. Surely what he himself might make from so little would belong to him and only to him. These, then, were the circumstances in which Jake found himself that January evening at his computer in his cruddy Cobleskill apartment in the leather-stocking region of upstate New York, out of pride, hope, time, and, he could finally admit, ideas of his own. He hadn't gone looking for this. He had upheld the honor of writers who listened to the ideas of other writers and then turned responsibly back to their own. He had absolutely not invited the brilliant spark his student had abandoned, okay, involuntarily abandoned, to come to him. But come it had, and here it was. This urgent, shimmering thing, already tap-tapping in his head, already hounding him, the ideas, the characters, the problem. So what was Jake going to do about that? A rhetorical question, obviously. He knew exactly what he was going to do about that. So I've been talking to Jean Hanf-Korolitz. We've been talking about her latest novel, The Plot, which is out in the UK from Faber. Jean, thank you so much for taking the time to share thank it with us. Thank you, Neil. It was great to talk to you again.
This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.